Exodus chapter 8 is our text this evening. We're going to uh, examine, we've, we started the, the ten plagues proper, if you will, last time. Uh, we looked at the first of the ten plagues, the turning of the Nile into blood. Tonight we're going to focus on the second plague, which is the plague of frogs. And so we'll start in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and by God's grace, we'll make it down to verse 15. And again, as we address the plagues, we're going to address them in a very simple thought flow where we're just kind of kind of examine the scene and then kind of go back and recap it and consider the significance. All right, that's a real simple thought flow that we're going to probably use through the examination of of the majority of the the plagues. And then, of course, when we get to the 10th plague, that has enormous significance in the couple extra chapters uh, in the book where it describes the Passover, etc. So we'll obviously deal with that in due time. But if you've got a Bible, let's read the text. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Let's read down to verse 15. It says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your borders with frogs. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house and into your bedchamber and upon your bed and into the house of your servants and upon your people and into your ovens and into your kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up both on you and upon your people and upon all your servants. And the Lord spake unto Moses, say unto Aaron, stretch forth your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, glory over me, or uh, he's, some translations would say, you know, I give you the honor. But he says, I entreat, or when shall I entreat for you and for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. And he said, tomorrow. And he said, be it according to your word, that you may know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you and from your houses and from your servants and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps and the land stank. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, He hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. All right, so again, we're going to see a simple repetitive pattern here of God uh, giving the warning, leveling the plague, and then, of course, we'll see Pharaoh's reaction. And this is going to become typical. We'll see some variation as we go, which in and of itself will also give credence to uh, the significance of the various plagues etc. But we'll see this pretty similar sort of pattern as the 10 plagues are reported through the next several chapters. But as we begin our examination, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8, notice how God begins with a threat toward Pharaoh that also highlights the intensity of the coming plague. So again, recall the patterns. We won't revisit this necessarily every single time. But recall that the the plagues uh, show up in three triplets, basically, with the 10th plague being a final kind of climactic plague. But they, uh, the first 
in the triplets will begin with a warning. And then the third plague of each triplet will not uh, have a warning. God will simply level the plague. But here's the second plague, and so we see once again a warning issued. But as he gives the warning, uh, as God is describing to Moses what it will be like, he describes the intensity of it. Verse 3 in particular highlights this intensity by saying that God says he will bring forth frogs abundantly. Now, some of your translations may use the word team or something along those lines. But the basic meaning of this word is to be a swarm or to be innumerable. Now, I alluded to this, I think, last week. But recall, a lot of the narratives, Hebrew literature loves to do this, but there's going to be key words, repeated words, that are going to appear in various portions of the, of the narrative that are meant to be uh, you know, connectors, to, to meant, meant to show you comparison, contrast, etc., but, for instance, this is the exact same word that was used back in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7, but it's a very different context. Do you remember this? In Exodus 1, 7, it says, The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Right? So, in other words, the, the first appearance of this is when uh, Israel was fruitful and the land was filled with them. But how did the Egyptians respond to that? Right? Well, they begin to oppress the Hebrew people, kill the Hebrew babies, etc. And in other words, they, the, the Egyptians viewed the Hebrews as varmints, if you will, worthy of, of nothing more than slaughter. Right? There was too many of them. They were covering the face of the earth, so let's get rid of them. Well, now, notice again, the narrative is, is intentionally repeating similar verbiage so that you can see that God is, and we talked about this last time a little bit, but God is repaying in kind, in a sense, that he's going to make the Egyptians experience uh, some, you know, eat their words, in a sense, or experience the reversal of their crimes upon themselves. And m many of the plagues, you're going to see similar uh, vocabulary choices that are meant to highlight that reality, that God is now going to give them something that truly swarms and teems, uh, covers the ground innumerably, but it's going to be a real nuisance uh, rather than the Hebrews, right? The Hebrews were actually a source of blessing for the Egyptian nation. When you think about not only the, you know, uh, their economically, you know, provision of sheep, etc. Heritage-wise, you can go back to Joseph, right? It says that he, there was the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph that began to oppress the people. Well, Joseph uh, nearly single-handedly saved the nation of Egypt a few generations before, right? In other words, we could go on about the various blessings that the Hebrew people were to the nation of Egypt, but rather the Egyptians saw them not as a blessing, but as a curse. They saw them as a nuisance, but now God's going to give them a real one. So, uh, but this, the, again, this introduction, verses 1 to 4, it highlights the intensity of this coming plague, not only in using that word, but it describes how uh, the, the frogs would not only be innumerable, but also inescapable. Verse 3 is rather uh, redundant, emphatic, in fact, when it reports that the frogs will come up out of the Nile into the Egyptians' homes, ovens, and kneading bowls, right? And it, and it emphasizes that it'll not only be the commoners, but the Egyptian hierarchy, the Pharaoh himself, will uh, experience this. He, he will not be exempt from this plague. Now, again, this is another example of the intensifying. Just keep an eye on this. We'll point it out as we go. But the plagues are going to start, you know, somewhat, again, every one of them are meant to be a judgment. And so I, I wouldn't say they're insignificant. But they're going to start smaller, and then they're going to grow more intense in the level of punishment and, and uh, you know, 
suffering that it will afflict upon the Egyptians. Well, we see this between the first and second plague, at least in this regard, that the first plague was presumably of little personal hardship for the Pharaoh himself. Others would have most likely brought him water from freshly dug wells. Recall they had to dig wells beside the river to find fresh water. We read that last week. But uh, he, you know, all he really missed, as one scholar put it, is he missed his usual bath in the Nile, right? That's really the, the big inconvenience that Pharaoh personally experienced from the first plague. But now he also would undergo the hardship like everybody else. In other words, the intensity is becoming, uh, in, you know, it's being increased. Now, again, it's, it's fun to compare Scripture with Scripture, but there's two passages in the Psalms where you're going to see this plague remembered. Psalm 78 and Psalm 105 are two of the famous historic psalms that are summaries of Hebrew history. And they're meant to, of course, praise God for his various works, etc. But they will both, as they survey Hebrew history, they will both remember the second plague. And they will describe the frogs uh, in fact, it uses a pretty intense word. It uses in, in Psalm seventy-eight forty-five that the frogs destroyed them, that is, destroyed the Egyptians, that it was actually not merely a nuisance, but in some ways it would have been destructive to property, to food, etc. And again, we're going to see in Psalm 105, verse 30, it summarizes the Exodus account by saying this, that their land, again, teemed with frogs, which went up into the chambers of their kings. In other words, the poets... Uh, of the Psalms are going to remember this, but it's always interesting. I love how, and particularly the Psalms are fun to study in this regard, because it adds what you, what I call the third dimension, if you will. It kind of gives us a 3D picture of biblical history. You can read the actual history account in the history books, like whether we're reading Life of David, right, or we're reading Exodus or whatever, but then you can see how later authors either reflected back upon it or David, in David's case, he was going through what he was experiencing in life, but then he records in the Psalms his emotions and thoughts, you know, in that given historic situation. So it adds a third dimension. It helps, it, it adds color, if you will. Uh, it, help, it gives us more information. Uh, and in this regard, it's what the poets are, as they're thinking back and they're reflecting upon the, the, the plagues, this is what stood out to them, particularly that it was not only destructive, Psalm 78, to the Egyptians, but that they went up into the chamber of their kings. In other words, it's like the psalmist, Psalm 105, was reveling in that a little bit, that even the Pharaoh had to experience this inconvenience. Now, again, to take this a step further, Boyce, one of the commentators, points this out, that ancient Egyptian amulets that have been discovered have been uh, discovered carved in the shape of frogs and they were supposed to have magical powers and religious significance again just like and this is true of of all the plagues but whatever's being targeted typically has some sort of religious significance to the egyptian people many times there's a particular god uh, that's being attacked uh, or or uh, a, a venue where the where a particular god was supposed to have power well, again, frogs were, were supposed to have some sort of magical power and religious significance to the Egyptians. And one of the great goddesses of Egypt was Heket, who was often pictured with the head and sometimes the body of a frog. It's a particular uh, Egyptian goddess that was being attacked here, uh, so it seems. But it's possible that the connection between frogs and the goddess uh, meant that the frogs were sacred and could not be killed. In other words, and I think it's interesting, but Boyce concludes that based upon what we can understand from Egyptology, it's very possible that because of the sacred nature of these frogs, they couldn't be killed. So think about that. 
right? I mean, what's, what do we do when flies or mosquitoes are driving us nuts, right? We put up fly strips and we smash them and, you know, smash mosquitoes or whatever. But what if you have this crazy nuisance of frogs everywhere and you, you're, they're, they're considered sacred? You're not actually allowed to kill them or shoo them, or, you know, it's like, whew, talk about a little bit of uh, discomfort. In fact, I like the way one commentator, a guy by the name of Stuart, develops this scene just to try and give us some mental imagery. He says, what was actually threatened was the ugliness of having slimy, unsanitary, unpleasant to the touch amphibians everywhere, and the constant annoyance of having to listen to them croak and peep throughout all the parts of people's houses. Implied is the disgust that would occur when people stepped on the frogs, as far as we know, he points out. Egyptians did not wear shoes indoors. Uh, But when they rolled over on their bed, again, people slept on mats on the floor, not on elevated beds, as Westerners think of beds. And when they were surprised by them in various places, though otherwise uh, thought otherwise to be clean, such as feeding troughs or ovens, right? You're trying to cook and out come the frogs, right? Um, I mean, again, it's, it's kind of fun to place yourself there to try and imagine what this would have been like, right? Try to relive this the best you can in you know, your mind's eye, if you will. But nonetheless, God reports that this is what the plague will be like. That's verses 1 to 4. Well, beginning verse 5 then, he, he records the actual event where he gives uh, to Moses the command to go to Aaron, Aaron to stretch forth his hand, uh, his rod over the streams, rivers, ponds, etc., so that the land would be uh, you know, filled with frogs. Now again, as it says in verse 6, that when Aaron does this, he stretches it out, the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The verb that is used there in verse 6, to cover, is also used later in Exodus chapter 10, uh, in verse 5 and verse 15, of the plague of locusts. And the idea is in those passages, it's, it's described how the locusts were covering the surface of the land so that no one would, was able to see the land. In other words, I think that's what we should visualize. We're, again, we're not talking about just a frog here or there, but it would have been this swarm of, of frogs covering the ground that would have been, uh, you know, now you would be incapable of even seeing the land. And so, again, as it reports that this occurs, it also is faithful to report, verse 7, that the Egyptian magicians once again were able to reduplicate the plague, but were not able to reverse it. We've pointed this out many times. However, this will be the last time that they're able to do this. They're able to reduplicate really the first two plagues, but you could say... Uh, you know, three things because in the serpent encounter, remember, they have the stabs and they throw them down. The stabs become serpents. They were able to reduplicate that. So they're able to reduplicate the first three, you know, miraculous events, if you will. But then by the, the fourth event, third plague, they're incapable of doing so. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next time because that is really one of the key significant points of the next plague, the third plague, is that they can't reproduce it and they label this as the finger of God, if you recall. But nonetheless, they are here once again able to reduplicate it but not reverse it. So even in their reduplication, it's still less impressive and it's, a, it's, it's not a display of equal power because they cannot reverse the plague. Right? That's the idea. And so in this whole idea of the power play between the forces of evil, the forces of darkness, if you will, versus uh, God's power, they, they're, they're not equal powers. God is going to... Uh, humiliate them and defeat them and to the point that even these magicians will admit that they cannot keep up with the power that is being displayed here so what happens next verses 8 to 14 then summarize what happens after the plague 
takes place. The plague is reported verses 1 to 7. Well, then you see the, this interesting scene unfold, and this is going to be the first um, kind of, well, a second, I'm sorry, because we have this, the second plague, because we have uh, a, a similar interchange, but, you know, in, in the first plague. But you're going to see this interchange between Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron. It's an interesting dynamic. You're going to see it kind of ebb and flow, where you're going to see Pharaoh begin to cave in he begin in some cases and then he retracts he makes promises he doesn't keep uh, a couple of times he will actually admit his own fault it doesn't happen until way later <laughs> um, but the point is watch those dynamics and you'll see a gradual you know uh, it's evidencing the intensity of the plagues where pharaoh it still reports that his heart is hard but he's trying to scurry out of the consequences if you will He's trying to create compromises, um, and, and we're going to witness that as we work our way through. So these, it's, it's always part of the plague narrative. It reports, it's, there's typically the narrative will describe what God says to Moses, then you have the, you know, the inaction of the plague itself, and then you see the reaction of Pharaoh or his servants, and then it, it kind of uses that to stew on the significance of the plague. But notice again, the fact that Pharaoh must entreat Moses to entreat Yahweh according to these verses. He had turned to his uh, magicians, right? But they could not reverse the plague. And so he will see that this idea in verse 8 is, is emphatic when it says, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron saying, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. Then, of course, he makes an empty promise, which he'll go back on. But he says, I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, again, that empty promise is going to become pretty repetitive. We're going to see that in most of the plague narratives. But notice again the significance is that he realizes, because he's going to turn to his own resources first. He's going to use his magicians first, but when they're incapable of reversing the plague, well, now he says, all right, right? He's got to call them back into his presence. He has to have Moses and Aaron go and entreat the Lord. But we'll see that uh, increase as we go. So it is also interesting to note in verse 8 that this is actually the first time Pharaoh acknowledges the name Yahweh. Look at it again. But he says, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat Yahweh, right? L-O-R-D, all capital letters. Now, we've talked about that before, but Yahweh is a name that may well have been re revealed for the very first time to Moses at the burning bush. That is debatable, uh, but it's, it's possible. Uh, even probably, uh, at least in, uh, I kind of like to lean that way. But so when Moses and Aaron show up, chapter five, the first confrontation before Pharaoh, remember this, they say, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh, right? And so of course, what God's going to do is he's going to introduce himself in the next several plagues. But often it's, it's always interesting to note how the pagans address God, all right? In other words, more often than not, the pagans, that was Pharaoh, his servants, his magicians, when they talk about God, even in the next uh, plague, when, they, when the magicians, for instance, admit that God, this is the finger of God, they use the term Elohim. Elohim is a title, it's not a name. You know, Elohim, God. It, it was used by other religions to refer to their deities. And so it's, it's, it's interesting how often, you know, scholars, many scholars draw attention to that, that when a particular character might admit that God's working, they will, you know, use a generic title rather than his specific name. 
uh, and, and there may be significance in that. But nonetheless, we're going to see this is the first appearance of Yahweh, or the name Yahweh on the lips of Pharaoh, where he actually admits and he uses the name Yahweh, acknowledging that Yahweh is the name of the God of the Hebrews. And of course, that will become all the more intense as the plagues go on. But again, as he is admitting that Yahweh is the one that must remove the frogs, right? Because again, that's an important admission in verse 8. He says, entreat Yahweh that he may take away the frogs from me. This is an important admission in the light of, uh, you know, in light of Egyptian religion. I mentioned Haket a moment ago, but supposedly, according to Egyptian religion, she had the ability, responsibility, of controlling the multiplication of frogs in ancient Egypt by protecting the frog-eating crocodiles. All right, that was her primary job, uh, supposedly. Well, she failed in her job. And so not only are there too many frogs, but Haket... Because uh, imagine, I, I mean, this would have been the case. When these things happen, Pharaoh would turn to the magicians. The magicians would go to their incantations. They would go to their prayers. They would be praying to Haket. And we, it doesn't tell us how long, right? Like I said before, uh, last week, it gives us a little detail in chapter 7, which most scholars believe is probably the norm, that a plague would last around a week. Right? At least it says explicitly that the Nile, you know, the blood, uh, the water into blood lasted for seven days, right? And then they, they go and entreat Moses, and then the next day it clears up, right? And so it was an eight-day plague, but, but it was seven days that they endured it before the actual, you know, entreating Yahweh to remove it, etc. Well, that's probably, according to just normal standard ancient Near Eastern practices, when a sequence was written, recall this, Often there would be a chronological detail added at the beginning, and that you're, you're basically to assume that that's the normal, you know, that would be the norm for the sequence. In other words, it's probable that, that these plagues are lasting about a week at a time-ish, you know, give or take a couple of days. But the idea is, what do you think they're doing during that week? Right? Well, they're going to get all the, go through the, all the slew of emotions of shock, right, disgust, anger, uh, you know, all, uh, the, then they're going to turn to their gods. They're going to start praying to Haket. They're going to start turning to the magicians. They're going to start, you know, pulling out all the stops, if you will, looking to all their resources to try and overcome this. And it's not like they turn to Moses and Aaron right away. You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, are you going to go to your enemy and ask for help? You know what I'm saying? So they're going to, this is a last resort that they go to Moses and Aaron, but that's the point is that they're going to try everything else, and then they're going to say, okay, entreat Yahweh that he would remove the frogs. In other words, every time they have to entreat Yahweh, which is every single plague, that's the point, they've already prayed to Haket. They've already prayed to Ra or Anubis or, you know, pick your Egyptian god that they're praying to, but their Egyptian gods are impotent. They cannot uh, deliver them. So they have to begrudgingly go ask Moses and Aaron to entreat Yahweh. And so, again, the whole point is that Yahweh is overwhelming Haket, causing her to be impotent at her task. And so, therefore, it is the Hebrew God who really bestows fertility. He rapidly produces the frogs so that they become a curse upon Egypt. But not only is he the God that can rapidly uh, produce them, he's also the God that can remove them, which is, of course, what uh, he does. But it's interesting in verse 9 that Moses says to Pharaoh, and again, depending on your translation, Old King James says, glory over me. When shall I entreat uh, for you that the, that, and your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from your houses, etc.? In other words, the term glory over me, it means I'm giving you the honor. He says, you do the honor. 
you do the honors, in other words. By giving Pharaoh the choice of when the frogs are to be removed, Moses is indicating that he is not manipulating the situation. That's really the point, that Yahweh can remove the frogs at any time, right? It's kind of like it's putting the ball in, in Pharaoh's court, if you will. He says, go ahead, you just name the time. You tell me, and then we'll, you know, I'll, I'll pray, and God will remove the, the frog. So Pharaoh says, do it tomorrow. So what happens? Well, the scene reports that Moses goes out, cries to God, and just as God promised, he removes the frogs. Now again, verse 14 describes that, uh, as in verse 13, God did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died. Out of, all, out of the houses, the villages, and out of the fields. But then, verse 14, so I, I should probably, you know, my vocabulary needs to be a little more precise. God removes the, pl- the plague in the sense that they stop coming up, right? right? But they all die, and what do they do? Verse 14, they gather them together upon heaps. So the literal Hebrew in verse 14 is emphatic, it's repetitive, that they heap them up heaps, heaps, right? Actually, the, the word... Uh, heaps, the noun shows up twice, the verb shows up once. So three times the root shows up. And the point is, just like in the first plague, the land stank. So they're, they're going through, again, cleaning out the houses, piling them into piles. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you do that while they're slimy or do you wait till they dry out? I don't know. I don't know which one's worse. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Can you imagine how this stinks? I mean, I can. I Yeah. I mean, it's, I was just recently, we went on vacation, and we, we went crabbing with your equipment. We did catch a crab, right? I told you. It was about this big. They named him Gerald. <laughs> so we threw him back. But nonetheless, uh, we were trying the raw chicken thing, and, you know, and it was like, uh, we, we tried it uh, for a day, and, and we weren't catching any fish, and then there was somebody just down from us that, not fish, catching crab. And there was someone that caught like six crab, and they said, hey, and they, they were using fresh salmon. I think I told you that. But it was like a couple days old. You know, this salmon. And they, oh, exactly, that's my point. They gave it to me. It, it kind of turned my stomach. I was like, whoa. Like, <laughs> like that did not smell right. Because I had just ate salmon earlier that morning, you know. <laughs> you know, like fried salmon. And I was like, and I had it in my belly, and I smelled the, it was, anyways. Need I go on? But the point is, it's kind of that nasty fishy smell, you know what I'm saying? Not our, not our favorite. But the point is, God is, is, is just humiliating the nation of Egypt. And this is going to happen over and over and over again. As you think about not only the disaster, but the cleanup crew, right? I mean, oh, bummer. How'd you like to be that dude, right? That's, <laughs> that's in charge of that. Yeah. When God killed the frogs, did he kill all the ones that he created, or did he also kill the ones that the magicians created? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it, it says it was all the ones um, in the houses. All of them died that were in the houses of the villages and out of the fields. So, presumably, it would be the ones that, yeah, they were able to create or call out as well. Yeah, all of them. So they still had a bunch of left over. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big uh, frog gigging episode, right? Plenty of frog legs, right? I'm not going to go hungry that day. <laughs> That's so true. But notice again that the text is, is emphatic. Verse 15, this is going to get repetitive. It's going to get annoyingly repetitive as we work our way through. But once again, as soon as there's relief, and this is, this is not only true of Pharaoh, but how often this is true of us. It's human nature. And God knows this. How many times does he say this throughout the, the Psalms? Uh, you know, we see it in the prophets. We see it in Deuteronomy 32. 
where he says, you know, you will turn to me as soon as it gets hard, right? But as soon as it's easier, well, we forget God, right? As soon as it points out, as soon as there was respite, he hardens his heart. I need God to remove the frogs. I need Yahweh because Haket isn't working, but I need Yahweh to, so that we can overcome this plague. But then as soon as we re- experience the relief, then we don't need God anymore. And you know, again, we are so guilty of that as well. But that's exactly what's, what's going to happen. Now, we're going to see this over and over again, and I love how Isaiah 26 puts it. Um, and it's referring, you know, not specifically to the plague, but I think it has clear application. Isaiah 26.10 says this, Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. Isn't that powerful? <clears throat> and the idea is, is Pharaoh is set to do wickedly. Right? And... The idea is God's going to show him grace. How many times is God going to show him grace? Well, we're going to have 10 plagues here where God's going to give him all these chances and he's going to renege on you know, all of his, Pharaoh's going to renege on all his promises, reject all of, of God's opportunity for grace. So God has to bring the hammer. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's the way we are so many times is that we, we have to learn the hard way. You know what I'm saying? So that's exactly what Pharaoh is going to experience. Oh, yeah. I just think it's kind of symbolic at the end of that plague how, you know, what they did with the frogs and what was left was simultaneously the showing the relief of God, yet also the fact that they piled them up so made it much more visual. And that stunk, it visually showed, here, this is what you did, despite the fact that God, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. It's kind of a symbology of, like, this is what you're capable of. And, you know, God saved you from it. He hardens his heart all over again. Yeah, exactly. He, yeah, the evidence is still there. That's good. The evidence in piles, but he's still going to harden his heart. Right. Yep, that's exactly right. That's right. Yeah, it still stinks, right? It's still in your nostrils. That's exactly right. He's going to be very hard-hearted. We're going to see it over and over and over again. And again, we, I know we talked about this a few weeks back, but the whole point of this, like, why is God taking ten plagues? Why is he, you know, again, the whole point is he's grandstanding this. And it has a variety of, of reasons. He's humiliating Pharaoh and, and the Egyptian, you know, nation, the Egyptian pantheon. He's also vindicating himself, right? Every, every time Pharaoh hardens his heart, God is all the more vindicated to do the next plague. And he hardens it again. God's all the more vindicated to do the next play, right? So God is vindicating himself. He is totally just in everything that he does. Um, But he's also teaching and training Israel, right? He's got to tutor them because as we'll see, right, as the old adage is, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't get Egypt out of Israel, (laughs) right? Because they're going to, they need to be trained, in this whole process. So there's multiple, you know, angles and dynamics going on with the plagues. But again, the, our, our text draws this, the primary significance. So let's revisit this. And, and, and most, we won't revisit this every single time because most of the plagues are going to highlight this in one degree or another. But nonetheless, look at verse 10, where Moses says, okay, because Pharaoh says, we'll do it tomorrow. So he said, Moses back says, be it according to your word that you may know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. So again, the primary significance of this plague, as highlighted in verse 10, and this is true of all the plagues, but Moses uh, prays to Yahweh that 
you, again, Moses will pray to Yahweh, but you, speaking to Pharaoh, that you might know, that Pharaoh might know, that there is no one like Yahweh our God. And again, this is not only the theme of the second plague, but also the theme of all the plagues, yea, the entire Bible, that Yahweh is seeking to distinguish his power and his grace. And the whole point is that when one compares Yahweh with the other gods in antiquity, they discover that false gods are bankrupt in majesty and morality. In fact, uh, I think Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, uh, points this out beautifully. I think, this, I, think I got this uh, particular phraseology from him. He says this, that, quote, In the myths, gods are depicted as selfish, arrogant, sadistic, lustful, drunken, vain, or hateful. In other words, they mirror humanity. I don't know if anyone done that. Have you ever studied mythology, right? We're, we're more familiar with, like, what, mostly, what, Greco-Roman, probably? Mythology? Well, I've done a lot of the Babylonian ones, too. Babylonian, okay. Babylonian, Egyptian, right? I mean, we have all sorts of mythologies, but what's, they all share this in common. Uh, and these, these gods, they're quote-unquote gods that they're being worshipped, are mirrors of humanity. They're just as selfish, arrogant, sadistic, lustful, drunken, vain, hateful as humans are. These gods are just powerful mortals, in a sense, with the same desires, character flaws, sins, and objectives as their lesser-powered creations. That's the, it's a common thread in all the mythologies of the ancient world. Now, we're not going to get lost in this, but for an example, in the Egyptian mythologies, there was war between two particular gods, the gods Seth and Osiris. Seth slew and dismembered his older brother Osiris, and he ruled Egypt in his stead. When Osiris' son Horus claimed the throne, Seth fought with him as well. Eventually, a tribunal of gods decided that the dispute uh, decided the dispute over who should rule Egypt. Now again, after much politicking and quarreling, Horus was then granted the throne and Seth was given the position of thunder god. Now we could go on, and, and I'm leaving out the, the most gross details because I kind of want to keep it PG, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's, it's pretty nasty when you read of the Egyptian mythology. But the point is, it, how, I mean, that reads like a modern sitcom, basically. You know, I mean, it's like there's, there's just all this, there's this politicking, the infighting, the quarreling, the hate, murder, you know, all, everything. I mean, these are X-rated mythologies. And what's what? And again, don't forget the biblical principle that you are what you worship. You are what you worship. And so, what do you think society, Egyptian society, was like when they venerate gods that do this? That's right. I mean, they're your heroes, right? I mean, they're who you are. You're lifting up to emulate in your society. You pray to these gods. You sacrifice to these gods. You seek to emulate these gods in some ways, very literally. Like, I mean, that's the whole idea of, of some of the repetitive magic is they would try to actually recreate the, the myths and, and relive and, and enact and, and act out in dramatic fashion the mythologies, and which led to human sacrifice, all sorts of, again, X-rated material. Did you have a hand up? It justifies their actions. Absolutely justifies their actions. And you'll never rise above your concept of God. And when you have this, these gods as your, your deities, then yeah, think about, it just tanks the society. You got a hand up?
That's absolutely right. Yep. And I shared with it uh, with uh, in a couple of different venues. My favorite example of that, you all remember, some of you perhaps, the prayer to any God. That's It's Babylonian. But it, it's a... It's a... The prayer to any God that we... It was a cuneiform tablet that was discovered. But it was a prayer uh, or an incantation where there was the worshiper was praying... But it's pathetic uh, because he's praying to any god or goddess that will listen. And he admits several times in there, I don't know what I did or did not do to anger you. But he says, would you please forgive me? Right? In other words, he is. He's being plagued by, and we don't know exactly what his plague was. There's one line in there that, you know, in his prayer that makes scholars suggest, you know, it's suggestive to scholars that uh, he was some some sort of sickness, physical ailment, perhaps that he was experiencing. But the whole point is, he's he's like, man, I you know I want deliverance, and I and he's and he assumes he offended some deity, but he didn't know what he did. And you're exactly right. Is that Yahweh is a God who's very clear, right? He makes a covenant. He issues commands. He offer you know he he brings and 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 provides the sacrificial system so that when we break fellowship we can restore fellowship right he's a god of grace look at how patient he is how many opportunities he gives to pharaoh and the egyptians to turn around right and look at how powerful he is you know in what he's capable of and you you match him up with haket or osiris or anubis or you know fill in the blank the point is you know and this is really the big question that the plagues are trying to bring out Again, for both an Egyptian and a Hebrew audience. But the question is, whom would you rather serve? Whom would you rather serve? What, what do you, which God do you want to be loyal to? And at the end of the ten plagues, it becomes, that's again, the, one of the whole purposes behind it. And remember the progression, that he'll say, I'm going to show you this so that you know that there is none like Yahweh. And then he says, none like him in the midst of the earth. Yea, none like him, you know, in, in the world. And in other words, there's, there's a, uh, a growing, it's like concentric circles that are ever expanding, is the idea that from Egypt to the ends of the earth, God's going to use the templates to declare himself, but not just that he's powerful, right? That's been the big emphasis that we've been emphasizing kind of up till now, that he's powerful, that he can humiliate the uh, Egyptian pantheon, etc. But all of his characteristics, look at his grace, Look at how he can, if you serve him, and we'll talk about this more, uh, not in the third plague, but in the fourth plague. So in chapter 8, verses 20 to 24, the plague of flies, we'll see that that's the first plague that God separates the children of Israel to where Egypt is experiencing you know, the, the plague, but not Israel. So it's a display of God's grace upon his people and, and what it's like to be one of God's. Uh, or, again, God's grace is displayed by how many times he allows Pharaoh to renege on his promises, and, you know, et cetera. It's, it's incredible. But the whole point is God is displaying, putting on display his characteristics so that Israel, Egypt, and all the world might know what he's like, that he is truly a God worth worshiping. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts on that? I'm about out of time, but any other thoughts on that? comments on that or even in particular the, the characteristics of God perhaps that you see in the narratives yeah I was just thinking 
Yep. <clears throat> yeah, how much evidence do you need, right? I mean, let's think about it. That's right, they harden their heart. And not to generalize, but have you ever met a politician who enjoys admitting he was wrong? <laughs> the one that'll even do it, right? I mean, they will redefine words, you know, <laughs> just to wiggle out of consequences, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's classic, it's human nature, but Pharaoh, Ahab, perfect examples of it. You know, that's a good point. <laughs> oh. All right, any, any other thoughts? Yes, sir. Just on the, along that line, somebody, I posted a couple recently about in the millennium, there won't even be people, nobody will even be an atheist. You know, everybody will be a believer hmm. in, that God's real, you know, like the people born in the millennium. Yeah. They're still going to be depraved and sinful. And That's right. That's good. No, I, I totally agree. Because that's, that's one of the classic questions, particularly people reading the book of Revelation, that is posed. Remember Revelation 20. It's just got a series of strange events, right? We have the second coming in chapter 19. We have the setting up of the kingdom, a perfect millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign uh, of Christ on the earth, you know, perfect king, present with his people, but then, after the thousand years is over, Satan is released. And we have his, you know, he is able to then gather the nations of the earth to rebel against God. And when you think about that, it's always like, because it, it almost seems like kind of redundant or like, like, what in the world? Like, why doesn't God just wipe them out in chapter 19? Why does he allow one more rebellion in chapter 20 after the thousand year reign? You know, and I think at least one of the purposes of that is exactly what you said is that even after a thousand years of perfect rule, just peace, prosperity that history has never seen before like that, there will still be enough residual evil in the heart of man that they will still, given the very presence of the creator, you know, they'll rebel against him. You know, and like you said, they can't deny his existence, right? I like that. There's no atheists in the millennium, right? <laughs> there he is, but they will still rebel. Right? And it's like, man, look at how hard-hearted we are, the sinfulness of man, but also I think that vindicates God. Because what happens next? Great white throne judgment. God opens the books and he says, all right. You know, and like, think about how just God is to condemn everyone you know, that has rejected him. Exactly. Very possible. That's right. Exactly, exactly. But isn't that true of every generation? Remember Jesus' own generation, the Pharisees. Jesus condemned them of that. Right, do another miracle, and then we'll believe. Or they say, had we been there, we would have never stoned the prophets like our fathers did. Right? I mean, we're all so self-righteous, right? Each generation thinks we're, we're, you know, the bee's knees or whatever, right? I mean, it's like we're awesome. Everybody else got it wrong. But, but you're right. God, is, God will be vindicated. Right? God is not mocked. 
right? Whatever man sows, that will he also reap. And so, Gordian, I'll come back over here. Do you have a hand up? Well, yeah, because I think Jesus answered that when he was talking to the rich man in Hades and said, some will not reap even though some will come back to be rich. That's right. It's that's right. No, that's right. Because, I mean, true belief, and I, I, I'm actually just about to turn in a term paper on this, but it's like true belief is more than just being mentally convinced of facts, right? Biblical belief is more than that. It's an act of the will where you are deciding to submit to what is true, right? It's not just knowing what's true. It's submitting to it. Right, and that's that idea of that act of the will. It's more than just an act, you know, knowledge from the intellect or even emotions. It involves your will, and you're right. People with full knowledge of the existence of God and the person of Christ will still choose to rebel. But absolutely, that plays right into it. Yeah, Jesus says, "Blessed are those who didn't see and yet believe." That's right. Amen. Yes, ma'am. I was just thinking, and this is neither here nor there, but nowadays people think, like, well, why didn't God stop that? Why didn't God stop that? And when we were talking in Isaiah on Sunday about how like, babies, like if somebody doesn't like the 100, they're cursed in God's judgment. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I was thinking of the millennium, like nobody's going to be able to act out their sin. God won't allow that because, you know, there's no, right? Am I right in that? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I like that. I never thought of it that way. But it's like the flip side of it, right? Now people claim that God is unjust because he doesn't kill soon, you know, sinners quick enough. You know, and <laughs> whereas then it'll be like, ah, oh, too soon, right? God, blah, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, that, man, isn't that true? We are endless in our accusations against God, aren't we? Wow, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> we are wicked, right? <laughs> that's the big takeaway I'm getting. <laughs> We're wicked, depraved sinners. Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> Looking to pray, little sinners, right? Okay, yes. <laughs> Carl? Well, for most everybody, it still takes faith. Yeah. I haven't seen heaven, and that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. I mean, I know it to be true, but I don't know what it looks like. It's like sure, yeah. We haven't experienced it yet. That's right. Amen. Amen. And we'll see it. You know, and again, I encourage you, and we can end with this, but that, that idea of faith, watch it develop, even the book of Exodus, right? Because you're going to see this, you know, tug of war between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. But then, I think I drew attention to this last week, but you're going to see the commoners, the Egyptian commoners, and how some of them are going to believe. And, you know, but many will not. And you're going to see, in a sense, this... Exodus is, a, is kind of illustrating the tug-of-war that's still going on today. I mean, it's, it's God versus Satan, right? Good versus evil. But 
we're the ones that are riding the fence, right? Humanity is the one that, in a sense, they're fighting over, right? Who, who are we going to believe? Are we going to, you know, and that we're going to see that very clearly in the book of Exodus played out, in, you know, in a historic level, but that's still what's happening. You know, it's like, okay, are we going to believe God and follow him or are we going to, you know, hold to our traditions and our mythologies? Yeah. That brings me to the thought that uh, the heart is deceitfully wicked, and a man can lead his heart other than what God. That's right. Gives. That's right. He can deceive himself, believe his own lies. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Well, that's good. That's Jeremiah, right? Seventeen. Deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked, where we believe our own lies and our own justifications for things. Yeah. Right? Man, we're good at that. It, it's sad. That's a good way of putting it. It really is. Yeah, I mean, look it at is. the homosexual movement and everything you see out there today. It's sad. They're all going to hell and they don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if you're in a strict sex situation. Exactly. Sad. Exactly. It's sad when we just blur the lines, right? And we don't make it clear or take a stand for truth. It's very difficult. Yeah. According to. Uh, <clears throat> Mm-hmm. He said that all of this stuff that's going on with the transsexual, bisexual, whatever nonsense that's going on is uh, goes all the way back to Ishtar. And she was the one that was in control of all of that. And she sure. has now come back in full force. Sure. Yeah, because it's not new. What no, we're seeing is not new. It was just underground. Yeah, it's, it's just ancient paganism repackaged. Yeah. Because like Moloch, you know, you've got sacrifices of the children. Well, we've got it going on whole big time now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, right, there's nothing new under the sun. We're just watching this stuff. That's why I told you I like Ecclesiastes, see? Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. That's good. Yes, ma'am. I was thinking about that word no that he said there in 10. I think it's like six or seven times throughout the plague. He's going from here forward and he says, so that you may know, so that you may know, so you may know. I don't think it was like a, um, a knowledge that Pharaoh was lacking because he had all the proof, the beats of the frogs, you know, all the, right. you know, the, the things that came from the plagues and stuff, but a, like a, um, a belief, a faith, knowledge that That's he was right. talking about there and the no than just an acknowledgement, no. Exactly. That's good. So kind of coming right back to that nature of faith that you pointed out, Carl pointed out, is that knowledge in of itself is not saving faith. Right? The demons believe and tremble. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep, First Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffeth up. That's right. That's exactly right. Puffs up. Puffeth is King James. Sorry. It just, just oozes out of me sometimes. Can't help it. No. <laughs> when I was you know, a little wanna kid, I just memorized King James. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Susan. <laughs> you mean the classics? Right. Yeah. Good for you. No. <laughs> No, that's good. But, but God did not forget Egypt. That's right. I mean, in the intertestamental period, even um, the Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, 
right. That's right. Um, and so I think sometimes we really, I don't know, like, the eyes are up being like, oh, these guys are crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and truly, you know, seriously, there's still, much of their culture is, is fine and good paganism, but I don't think we can think we're over by their stuff in some way. Sure. No, that's good. Because again, again, it's another sign of God's grace, like we were saying. It's like, so there will be some Egyptians that believe, right, and, and, and trust Yahweh, even go out when the exodus occurs, there's the mixed multitude that leads Egypt. So there will be some Egyptians that, that follow in faith and go with Israel to the promised land. Most likely, that text in Isaiah 19 is a reference to the millennial period. And... Yeah, probably. And the idea is that, yeah, there will, be, there will be a remnant of believers from, again, remember the book of Revelation, every tribe, tongue, nation. That's right. That's right. And so there will be, yeah, even, and, and in that text, it's kind of emphatic because Egypt, Assyria, you know, are some classically enemies of Israel. And yet the whole point of that picture is that, look, God says, I'm gonna, they're going to be my people right along with Israel. Like we're going to see, you know, God's going to do a mighty work to where people from all nations are going to come to trust him. That's good. Amen. Amen. That'll preach. Right? That's good stuff. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Ben, could I ask you, my friend, lead us in prayer? Close this out. Go ahead, my man. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for this evening, Lord. Thank you for this uh, time to come, come together uh, as your church, as your bride. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for um, the lesson that we learned tonight, uh, your great work in Egypt, Lord. And Lord, we just uh, want to lift up all of the Amen.